Hello and welcome to This Is Modern Rock, the podcast that takes a look at the Billboard Modern Rock charts one month at a time. I'm your host, Will Westerkow, and joining me today to talk about the songs of June 1992 is Marin Cadell. Hi, Marin. Hi, Will. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. It's funny to be sort of casting back towards an entirely different time in my life, and really, I think, in the life of <laughs> our countries, Canada and the U.S., I would say. Yeah. This is almost exactly 30 years ago that we're going to be listening to. Holy crow, yeah. Well, I'm excited to have you on the show. It's fairly rare that I get to have an artist on the show to talk about their own song, and uh, that's what we're going to have you do today. But let's take a moment and introduce you. Marin, you are a Canadian writer, performer, and educator, and you're from Toronto. I actually am a dual citizen, although America often doesn't really acknowledge what that is. I was born in Brooklyn, New York, okay, and then moved to Canada with my parents when I was very small, and I really feel myself as being a citizen of both places. But yes, I grew up in a college town slash city outside of Toronto, to the west of Toronto, because my father was doing his postdoc work in Brooklyn, and then he was scooped up like so many others at that particular time for this university to begin teaching here at the University of Waterloo, which is where I spent some of my formative years before I escaped. <laughs> then I escaped to Toronto, and really Toronto is my true like heart and home. You've done a lot of work in the arts. Was that something that was going on in your household? Were your parents involved in, in the arts? So they were both very excited and very involved in what was going on in showbiz, especially in the, as they call it, legitimate theater. My mother has always been. She has an enormous knowledge and an enormous collection of materials around that. And so definitely like Stephen Sondheim, the soundtrack to Hair, and some early Beatles records, and opera that was all sort of spinning in my house and in my head as I came of age. Yeah. We're going to be talking in depth about one of your songs a little later in the episode, but I was curious before we get there about the Toronto scene. When I found your album and listened to it for the first time, I didn't know what I was getting into. It was totally unexpected, and it sounds like no other album I own, honestly. So I was just mm. curious, like, were you part of a scene in Toronto? Was there like a spoken word slash music thing going on, or were you a unique individual in the music scene there? Well, I mean, a couple of things. Of course, I'm a unique individual. <laughs> well, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was. There was a terrific scene. And what makes it kind of special in my mind and in my memory is that it was definitely not a spoken word scene. In fact, the term spoken word, the phrase, was not a thing that people understood. But so in terms of a music scene, Toronto was amazing. Toronto is amazing. But yes, there were many people that I met at the Beverly Tavern, at the Rivoli, and during this long-standing weekly evening called Elvis Monday that are my friends to this day. And an interesting connection, just because it's so strange in a way, but it was so natural to Elvis Monday, is that this guy, Alan, who was drumming in a band that we'd seen a couple times at Elvis Monday, said they'd got a gig at the Rivoli, which is like a bit of a step up, very exciting and asked if I would open for them. And I said, sure. And he was in a band with all siblings besides him. And the Timmons were the siblings and Cowboy Junkies was the band. And so did quite a few shows with opening for Cowboy Junkies, which was, if you think about it, it was very fitting, but it was sort of odd when you look back at it, that my crowd and Cowboy Junkies crowd would be the same. And that was really about just um, intelligence, I guess, for the mm -hmm. most part. Sure. The June 1992 charts are pretty interesting. One thing that I noticed is I took a look at the album rock charts for June 1992 as well. And this is kind of more of the, the mainstream charts where, you know, you would expect to see, I don't know, Van Halen or something like that. And of the top 10 album rock charts of June 1992, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nirvana, Matthew Sweet, Pearl Jam, and U2 are all on those charts as well sitting right alongside Ozzy Osbourne and Def Leppard and John Mellencamp. So we're, we're kind of wow. reaching this interesting moment in modern rock where uh, at least certain aspects of modern rock are becoming acceptable to, uh, I guess, a different group of listeners that weren't really interested in college rock or modern rock up to this point. Nirvana was such a juggernaut. And if they had not happened... 
I think rock, however it's defined, might have gone very differently. Like, it's hard to even put words to how much everything changed when that song blew the fucking paint off the walls Mm -hmm. and everyone sat up and realized, oh. Right. But it did bring a lot of very outside bands, like outside music, to the inside. And a really good example of that is Hole. I remember when I asked my manager, I wanted Pretty on the Inside, the first Hole record. I had read about it, but I asked him to get it for me because it was not available in Canada. And, uh, you know, next time we met or whatever, when we were in the same city or whatever, he said, here it is. It's unlistenable. (laughs) (laughs) And that's truly what he thought of it. But Hole, with that fantastic album, uh, lived through this. First of all, a woman-fronted band? Come on! Being successful? Mm-hmm. No way! <laughs> and not being, you know, a sex symbol to do it. It's, it's just, it's incredible that there were bands that were scruffy, scrappy, whatever, that were suddenly in record companies' offices. And the literally, I feel like Nirvana truly, of course, they didn't want to, and I think that's what made Kurt kind of uncomfortable to be alive. They were so influential, like they literally changed the face of the music industry at that point. Right. All right, well, let's go ahead and listen to our first song of the episode. We're going to be hearing a number one song from The Cure. Friday I'm In Love was The Cure's second single from their album Wish. It spent four weeks at number one and became their second highest charting Hot 100 hit, hitting number 18 on the Billboard Hot 100. It reached number six in the UK. Lead singer Robert Smith said this was his attempt at a dumb pop song. (laughs) He said it started uh, with just an idea to do a song about the days of the week. And when he came up with the chord progression, he was convinced that he stole it from somebody else's song. I think he played it around for all of his friends and said, like, hey, do you know this song? Like, what song is this? And no one could figure it out. So he said, all right, I guess it's, it's fair use. Totally can relate. Yeah. I love it that it's this sort of like this key unlocking like you're sure it's someone else's and then no one says like oh yeah yeah that's so and so yeah the lyrics are like super simple i just think robert smith is such a great songwriter that you know yeah he decides to write about those days of the week and and our ears say yes please yeah all right well let's hear it here's the cure with friday i'm in love i don't care if monday's blue tuesday's gray and wednesday too For me, it's a rock band attempting pop, and I think it succeeds marvelously. And I don't know, if I compare it to something like R.E.M.'s Shiny Happy People, that's also a rock band trying to do a pop song. And I don't hate Shiny Happy People like a lot of my listeners do. I think it's fine. But at the end of the day, it kind of feels like fluff to me, like it's catchy and fun. But Friday in Love is more satisfying. It's everything I would want from a pop song, honestly. Yeah, I agree. It's perfect. It's it's just a gorgeous pop song. Mm-hmm. And I love that he went in, Robert Smith went in with the intention that you described, which I assumed he had. It's so glorious. Like how, and I love the video, the music video for it, just because it's it has that same feel of just like, let's fuck around. Mm-hmm. The video kind of reflects the joy that I think the recording had. Yeah. I saw the cure in nineteen eighty-four. I love them. I love them now. But I obviously sort of not fell away from them, but just was less less on top of keeping up with what they were doing. Here's something I really love about Robert Smith. Their sound remained the same, not enough to be stultifying in any way, but to stay true to what the cure is. And I watched a bit of their acceptance speech at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with Trent Reznor giving them the honors. And I had this moment of looking at Robert Smith thinking, hmm, it's so difficult if you've been an eyeliner lipstick person 
male or more or less male person, do you at some point put that aside and look a different way? And either way you do it, someone's going to complain and think that you've done something sure. far beyond like you've sold out, you've whatever the hell. But as soon as I listened to him speak at that acceptance speech, I thought he is extraordinary and he's exactly as he should be. That's who Robert Smith is, as we know from The Cure. He looks like that, the eyeliner, the hair, the lips. And he is just a sweet, humble guy who I, I, I was really charmed by seeing that acceptance speech and how much he is the same guy. Yeah. I haven't seen that, but I, that sounds nice. I, I think I'll check that out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Robert Smith, he stated that he has kind of a love-hate relationship with the song, and I think that's understandable. It's probably their signature song at this point and the one song of theirs that non-Cure fans might know. And he also said it came to him really easily, you know, which that sounds like a really nice thing. But sometimes artists might have this tendency to think like, well, if I didn't struggle for it, if it came so easy, maybe it's not worthwhile. Yeah, which is a completely wrong assumption. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But, you know, it is it is a song that helped make them even more famous than they were already. It was a big crossover hit for the band. So, you know, he has mixed feelings, but I'm glad to hear that it's not one of those things like Radiohead with Creep, where it seems like they hate the song and they don't want to play it and they look down on it. So It's funny you say that because I was actually thinking about Radiohead and Creep earlier today, but I thought about seeing Radiohead on David Letterman and I never heard of them and they performed this song and I was blown away. Like, I just thought... Who are these people? It was so unusual for late night television for rock, pop, slash pop music at that time. And so lyrically and musically driven. Like it was it was amazing. It was so amazing. And I can understand absolutely why they stopped loving playing it, because I've been there too. It's really hard when something becomes your signature. Even though for you, it's exactly, you know, one fifteenth of that album you mm -hmm. made or, you know, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's creep. Yeah. All right. Well, The Cure will chart many more times on the modern rock charts after this, including a couple number twos, but Friday I'm in Love is the last time that they hit the number one spot. Let's, uh, let's move on. The next band we're going to hear from is The Jesus and Mary Chain. Popular legend held it that uh, this band's name came from a line in a Bing Crosby film or an offer for a necklace on the back of a cereal box. But I prefer that one. <laughs> yeah. Those stories, I think, were perpetrated by the Reed brothers themselves. And later the band more or less admitted that they pulled the name out of thin air and thought it sounded mysterious and cool. So we're going to go with that. We're going to be hearing a song from their fourth studio album entitled Honey's Dead. The song we're hearing is called Far Gone and Out. It's the second single from the album. The first one was called Reverence, and it received limited airplay and was banned on BBC Radio 1 and Top of the Pops for featuring lyrics about wanting to die like Jesus Christ and JFK. So uh, here it is, Far Gone and Out, number three modern rock hit. Yeah, I, I think it's great. I think they were so interesting for their arrival on the scene. They were a guitar band. They were a distortion-happy band. And at that time, that just was not the general scope of things. So it was cool to hear them and kind of refreshing. Yeah, you know, for me, whenever I see a band like Jesus Mary Chain or similar bands that are 
critically adored and they're clearly followers of the Velvet Underground and they wear sunglasses indoors. Bands that are either undeniably cool or working really hard to seem that way. I have this knee-jerk reaction where I don't want to like the band, but every time I listen to a Jesus Mary Chain song, I like the song. You know, I I hear what you're saying, though. So sonically, I liked it, but I didn't think, oh, God, right, this one... But um, lyrically, I think it's very strong. I think think the lyrics are, in a sense, more powerful than the music is. I watched the other day, I'm not going to be able to name the song, but a music video for an earlier song that was so Velvet Underground influenced. It was kind of crazy. Very Warhol. And, And in fact, it really worked. Like, I thought it was a pretty great video, even though I was thinking, oh, damn, you know, look how much this is paying tribute But it's hard to remember when they made a video like that, when they said, if they said, we want to kind of reflect the Velvet Underground, look at this aesthetic from Andy Warhol. It would have been signaled and received by the smallish number of people who would have recognized those specific visual cues and clues. Right. I don't know. It's something I really think about a lot is that now, as I say, they could be seen as being derivative or unimaginative, when at the time, that was truly not the case. Right. Am I making sense? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I understand. But so then that presents an interesting dilemma, and you just nailed it with sunglasses worn inside, and the whole, like all the tropes of Andy Warhol films, and the presentation of the underground in the late 60s. It's so easy to be really suspicious of stuff that completely emulates it. And yet, sometimes it's thrilling in its own way, the music is. Yeah. One more quick thing about Jesus and Mary Chain. In 1992, the Jesus and Mary Chain attempted to break in the U.S., and so they played Lollapalooza in 1992 that year. They had a miserable time. Oh, wow. And they also appeared on uh, Letterman, which you mentioned earlier. And as was the custom at the time, the band had to perform with Letterman's house band. With Paul Schaefer's, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge problem for so many bands. Yeah, and so uh, they actually performed this song, Far Gone and Out, on Letterman. And it's worth watching. Anyone you know who wants to go check it out, just search it up on YouTube. But the contrast between the Reed brothers looking clearly hungover, <laughs> you know, not not in the best physical shape, and then like the exuberant house band bassist, like jumping around, like big smile on his face having the best time it's pretty funny that sounds great i i just was thinking about that the other day the paul schaefer clause and i don't know if it came from paul schaefer but it was definitely a weird thing that you would be asked to use other players than your own players Mm -hmm. it's just so like literally upending the balance of what your band has come to be right i think we probably didn't see quite a number of bands who just couldn't get their head around the fact that like, okay, so I'm going to be there singing and playing guitar, but my bass player and my drummer have to stay home. Uh (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It just made no sense. Okay. We're going to move on to our third song. This is from Chris Mars. Chris Mars is most famous in the music world as the drummer for the band The Replacements. He's also pretty well known now as an established painter. He works primarily in oil, paints, and pastels. Yeah. But The Replacements, they're one of the most beloved bands on the early modern rock charts. Uh, They charted seven times, including two number one hits. And the modern rock charts didn't even start until after The Replacements had already put out their best albums. Chris Mars, he did a little bit of drumming on the final Replacements album, which came out in 1990, but he had left or been kicked out of the band before that album was actually recorded. And there's many reasons for that, but one of the reasons I've heard is that Chris was frequently writing his own songs for the Replacements, and he'd bring them to frontman Paul Westerberg. And around this time that he was kicked out of the band, he brought some songs and Paul Westerberg just rejected all of them without even listening to them as far as I know. And so I think Chris was feeling creatively wow. frustrated. And, you know, I, no on, on some level, like, I understand Paul Westerberg's view. Like, he considered that to be his band and he wanted it to be his songs. But I can also really see why that would be difficult for Chris. I can't imagine being Chris Mars in, in that moment. And, well, and, nor can I imagine being Paul Westerberg, where, you know, someone brings forward their songs to this group 
of which they think they're a part, and all of them being rejected out of hand, especially without hearing them. Right. Ownership in music is people think of it a lot, a lot in the um, sort of royalty um, division, which of course it is in the end. But what are, what it's really about in the beginning is like, well, who made this song? And some of the arguments that have come out of that are huge, are you know, yeah. saddening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Chris Mars took this opportunity to go solo, and in 1992, he released his debut solo album called Horseshoes and Hand Grenades. I think it came as a surprise to a lot of people, because not only is it a very solid album, but in addition to writing all these songs, Chris also played pretty much every single instrument uh, except bass. He did the drums, the guitars, everything, and uh, he even painted the album cover. So, yeah. <laughs> More or less doing it all. We're going to be listening to one of two singles from the album. This is called Popular Creeps, and it reached number nine on the modern rock charts in June of 1992. Here it is. If they try to slap I think it's great. I think it's a tremendously catchy song. To me, it feels a bit like The Cure's Friday I'm in Love in the sense of like just having a moment where things come together and you write a song and it's catchy. I don't mm -hmm. know if that's what it meant to Chris at all. I don't have too much to say about the song other than I think it's pretty catchy and I like it. But Chris Mars is singing here that popular creeps are riding high until the day they get burned and who's going to love them when they're unknown. So, uh, mm. you know, it's, it's kind of a nice sentiment for, for those people who have been picked on by the popular kids to think like, well, you know, just wait, like I'm only going to get better and they're already reaching their peak. And, and that's what you want a kid to hold on to. Like a kid who is original and interesting and struggling because of this weird shit format that they've been brought into. And then you want to say to them, Listen, you, it, it's not like it gets better. It does not even begin to touch on how much it gets better. Right. I read a biography on The Replacements called Trouble Boys. I thought it was a, a good read. But one of the stories that really stuck with me was that the band was on tour in Europe at some point. And while the band had a bit of a breather between gigs, he wanted to go off and I think visit the Louvre. Uh, I could be wrong about the museum, but he wanted to go see some art exhibit and the rest of the band harassed him so bad, like to the point where it, it wow. was, it's like they were threatening to kick him out of the band because what you do in this band, if you're a real member of this band, is you hang out in this group and you get wasted and you play some songs and you travel and you get wasted again. And anyone who's going to like want to go off and be hoity-toity and look at some paintings in a museum, like maybe you're not part of the team. Wow. That's extraordinary. I mean... Right. And it's, uh, yeah, it struck me at the time before I even really knew about Chris Mars's painting career. But in the context of like, when you see what he did post replacements, and he's been painting for decades now, and he's, you know, really a respected artist. It's just even more meaningful of a story, I think. Yeah, I, I'm, yeah. well, it sucks. Like that conversation totally sucks and would be totally disorienting and disenfranchising to anyone who was the butt of that conversation. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I can think without, you know, giving anyone too much of the benefit of the doubt is that, I mean, it's a ridiculous thing to say. It's a terrible thing to say. And I, I, I find it hard to believe that by the, you know, clear light of dawn, once um, the hangovers have worn off, that any of the members of the replacements would say that again. It's like, yeah, if you go to a fucking museum, you're not us. Like, I, I <laughs> yeah. just can't imagine. But maybe they did. I don't know. But still, it doesn't really matter because, you know, if you say stuff like that, uh, it has a permanent effect. That's it's. Yeah, it's shocking. Yeah. Well, if anyone's interested in checking out Chris Mars's art, uh, it's pretty easy to find online. He tends to paint in a style that is uh, it's a lot of creatures, a lot of scary-looking people and monsters, and it looks tortured. I find 
a lot of it quite beautiful. Like I see he sets this Francis Bacon kind of place. He sets this sort of dystopian norm where everyone looks like this, whatever that is, with distended features and that kind of thing. But in their eyes, when you look at these people in their eyes, you see true humans. You see, you mm. see real people. And I think given what I've read about him and his growing up alongside his brother and the things that happened with his brother who was diagnosed as schizophrenic and basically, as I understand it, sort of ambushed and taken away to a mental hospital when the brother was about 15. I think the work reflects the struggle of truth. What is true when you know, you know, that's your brother, you know who your brother is, you know what your brother is like. And Mm -hmm. then there is this institution and this idea that being outside of the norm of mental health is something so frightening and so worth capturing with handcuffs or a um, straitjacket. Right. I'm not surprised that that has continued to inform his work. Right, yeah. Chris Mars, he's mostly a painter these days. He did release a solo album called Note to Self in 2017 after two decades without putting music out. Mm. So uh, we're moving on to our last song, and uh, Marin, this is your song. What could it be? be? Yeah, we're (laughs) going to be hearing a song called The Sweater. This is from, uh, I I guess, your debut album from 1992, Angel Food for Thought. So the weird thing that happened to me, I guess, around The Sweater and the, the success of that is that people who'd never heard of me began to see me or understand me as this entirely different human and artist than what I was which is cool, whatever. I can't control that or change it. But when we were talking earlier about the bands in and around me, the scene in and around me, like when I finished my first album, I sent it to all these labels that I liked that I felt a connection with. And when I sent them my stuff, most of them were like, what the fuck? Like they had, they had no connection to it and they didn't see it as anything like they had already on, on their label. And the exception to that was 50 Skidillion Watts, which was the small label, very influenced by the Velvet Underground, that put out Mo Tucker's solo album in maybe 83 or something like that. And I also sent it to various Canadian um, regular record labels, some of whom got back to me and said, wow you have something incredible here and it's incredibly unique and it's not anything we can possibly work with, but you should keep going. So I had, I had really had this tremendous response to the first album. But so, yeah, I, it's, I wanted to say that in terms of the whole thing of like, where people started to see me as some kind of pop music darling or like comedy based musician It was always so frustrating for me because I knew what I was. I knew where I'd come from. And that's who I sent the records to, was all these labels who mostly said, like, um, no. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Angel Food for Thought, it's an album that there's multiple tracks on it that actually make me laugh out loud. Like, I've actually, you know, been walking along with my headphones on and listening to the album and burst out laughing. That's good. But it's not a comedy album. And no, it's not. And it actually, I, you know, I was going to say it's sort of sad, but really what it is, it's just full of all kinds of emotions. It's a, it's a complex album that if you're willing to sit down with it and think about it, it's going to make you feel all kinds of different ideas and all kinds of different feelings. And it's, there's no like easy adjective or easy emotion that I think you can use to describe it. You're absolutely right. The album came out in early 1991 or 92, I'm not sure. And that was on a small record label called Intrepid, which was distributed by Capital. And then at some point, my soon-to-become manager, Mark Nathan, he heard the song The Sweater, which I guess was just like getting played a bit on college radio maybe in the US. This is a year after it had come out in Canada. So he took it to Seymour Stein and said, listen to this. And then Seymour was excited about it as well. So then I was signed to Sire. But so from my perspective, it was all sort of like what was happening and then it was happening and then it was happening. And what happened with the release in the US and the resultant like top 30 or whatever it's called 
radio play, suddenly Canada top 30 radio was like, oh. So anyway, it charted in Canada at top 30 stations, and that was truly weird for me. So it had many lives, in a sense, that I don't really, I don't recall enough to, to really chart them. Yeah. Okay. We're going to be listening to The Sweater. The Sweater reached number 24 on the modern rock charts. Here it is. Okay. The Sweater. Now, if the sweater has, like, reindeer on it or is a funny color like yellow, I'm sorry, you can't get away with a sweater like that. Look for brown or gray or blue. Anything other than that, and you know you're dealing with someone who's different. And different is not what you're looking for. You're looking for those teenage alpine ski chiseled features and that sort of blank look which passes for deep thought or at least the notion that someone's home. You're looking for the boy of your dreams who is the same boy in the dreams of all of your friends. Now the sweater isn't going to fit you, of course. You have to kind of roll up the sleeves in a jaunty way that says this is the sweater belonging to a boy and the boy is a genuine hunk, a hunk of burning love and this is not just some hand-me-down from your brother or your father. Monday, wear the sweater to school. Be calm, look cute. Don't tell the dream you had about the place the two of you would share when you get older. Just be yourself. The best, cutest, quietest version of yourself the first thing that kind of stood out to me when i heard the song is it sounds like it's musically built on a sample it is yes did you pick out the sample was that something that you had lying around and thought this would be a good backing track no not at all and in fact there's a huge community of people with whom i was involved through ontario college of art and one of those was my pal tom third and i went to tom saying here can you make some music for this track? And fun fact, most things, if someone makes a backing track, the backing track gets made and the vocal artist records their vocal over that. With me, I had already recorded the vocal and asked Tom to make some sort of accompanying audio landscape. Mm-hmm. which made it hell to perform live, but it did make it very unique. I had a very great experience there, and I was very lucky to have both Stephen Traub and John Tucker on board to make that album. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about where the sweater came from as an idea? I, mean, I think you said earlier that it was not based like on a specific incident, with someone you knew, but I guess where do you where do you draw your inspiration from for these songs on this album and the sweater in particular? I think for almost any piece that I write in that kind of performative thing, I'm sort of just touchstoning on a person's feelings, a person's thoughts at a particular time. And I remember early on doing your interview at CBC Radio in Montreal, which is Radio Canada, and the host said, so you, you've had three kids? <laughs> I was just like, what? Because one of my characters in one of the songs, which was Being in Love, had talked about being pregnant with three kids, and I thought, you really think this whole album's about me? Wow, what a life that would be. <laughs> But so, yeah, I I was storytelling. I was storytelling in the first person from the viewpoint of whomever I was picturing as being the protagonist at that time. And I'll tell you something. It was only in about 2016, sometime not that long ago, that I realized, besides John Tucker being one to just be focused in on and helping these tracks to become what they became based on what I wanted them to be. I also thought about the albums of Tim Curry. Oh, okay. (laughs) What his albums were, they were samples of humans. They were samples of characters. They were the dip into this person and then the track finishes. Now the dip into that person and the track finishes. And it was only, as I say, only like, I don't know, four or five years ago that I realized that was huge in my understanding of what an album of whatever recordings could be. So between my quote-unquote performance art pieces on Queen Street because of Elvis Monday and the listening that I'd been doing in the late 70s to albums like Tim Curry's, 
it was a blink. There was no transition needed for me to understand. I'm going to make a bunch of pieces that are interrelated because they were all written by me mm-hmm. and my voice is the same, which it isn't now. <laughs> and that's what I did. And whether people have ever cottoned on to those senses of what I was doing, that's what was at its heart. Yeah. It's a, it's a good answer. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, thank you. I try. <laughs> you know, I, I feel a little weird bringing up the fact that you're a transgendered male, but you know, representation is important. And I feel like, like as long as you're comfortable talking about that, I think there are people listening potentially who just that knowledge would benefit perhaps. Yep, for sure. So speaking specifically about the music, a lot of the songs on Angel Food for Thought, they have, I don't know, they're, they're either kind of about women's issues or they take on the perspective of a woman. Do you still feel ownership of these songs? Would you feel comfortable performing these songs? Oh, well, absolutely to the first question, do I still feel ownership? Absolutely. Would I feel comfortable performing them? No, less so. And, well, most of it has to do with my own (laughs) dislike of performing. But also, I would be hyper aware of a male voice voicing those things. I've never thought of that that before, so that's not a hard and fast line on the, the last idea of me performing them. But the short answer to your question is no, not at all. Something I've thought about in coming back to talking about my work and reintroducing my work from that time is to talk about in some way, my God, the way the music industry was different at that time versus now is just extraordinary in its difference. And my concern in talking about that, like it was so different at this time than it is now, is that there'll be this huge simplification that, well, she didn't like it because women weren't very accepted in the music industry, so she became a guy. You know, the most reductive, ridiculous assumption available. But that's something I've actually already experienced, and so I'm not coming out of nowhere when I worry that that would be part of how I'm read or perceived. You know, my my first reaction to that is like, well, no one would ever say that, but I guess Uh, like the the stupidity of humans never ceases to amaze. And they seem to be the loudest, right? And I really do try to not honor those voices and not specifically respond to those voices unless it's kind of super necessary. Our culture has changed so much in a very positive way. And I'm so grateful for that. And I'm so aware of that. And as a trans person who even when I came out and I was, my name was still much more recognized than it is now. An older friend got in touch and he said, I'm so sorry. You've probably heard about the DJ on blah, 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 talking about you. And I wrote back and I said, no, I don't have any idea. And I didn't. I did not look it up. I didn't want to know what some hoser asshole on (laughs) (laughs) pop radio said about me. But here's the thing. In 2000, let's say four is probably the year that it was. That was so acceptable that there was never a peep of any kind of reaction against that. When you say that was so acceptable, you mean like somebody on the radio was being transphobic and that's the thing that was acceptable? Is that? Oh yeah, it meant nothing. Like nothing happened when this guy said, you know, I don't want to try to make up a similar homophobic idea, but you know, none of us would accept if we heard it now. Right. But at that time, there weren't a lot of people who had transitioned publicly especially female to male, quote, unquote. And so, yeah, I don't know what he said, and I never found out, I don't care. But the fact that that was acceptable fodder in the sense that, like, nothing happened to that DJ, whoever he might be. Whereas now, someone will say something marginally questioning, and they lose their job. Like the, Right. And... Believe me, when I say this, I'm not saying, oh my God, we've gone too far. I'm not saying that at all. Part of what I'm saying is, what a mind fuck for all the young people who are fighting for these 
freedoms and causes, which is amazing. Sometimes I think they don't remember or recall or take into account the fact that people they know have lived in a time where that was not at all the norm. And I am a huge believer in leaving people out in the cold and making people who think they have the right idea, but they don't, making them suffer and make them... <laughs> that sounds strong, but... <laughs> well, consequences for your actions, so to speak. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Anyway, wow. We're yeah. so far off the top. I, I know, I know, I know. So let's let's uh, rein it back in a little bit. So one thing I read online, and I can't find anything to support it, is that the Weezer hit, Undone the Sweater Song, was written uh, as a response to your song, The Sweater. Is that something that you've ever heard or know to be true, or is that just rumors flying about? I've heard that, and... I imagine that it's not true because I I don't see any connection and I don't think there's any connection. So that's all I know. Okay. All right. Sure. One other thing I wanted to mention about the sweater is I found a video of a, I think a 1997 World Professional Championships of Ice Skating in which a a young skater named Jose Chouinard. Oh, yeah. Listen, that's a very accomplished and incredible performers yes she did uh, an ice skating routine to the sweater and it was just a really exuberant enjoyable performance it was something different and uh, you know she's actually skating in a big oversized sweater for most of the routine i was made aware of that and i remember being in my mother's house but it started and i just i literally had to duck my head away and leave the room because it was so weird to me and not in a good way. Just like, oh. I just thought, why on earth would someone do this? And, <laughs> but it was very successful and a lot of people loved it. So I, you know, that's great. And she seems sweet and I've met her since. And I, my niece was a figure skater for a time. And so she got to meet Jose Srinard because of we were brought backstage wherever. But yeah. And anyway, there's a lot of things that have been done with high school synchronized action let's say where Mm -hmm. they've used a lot of my songs and um yeah i don't know what to think of it except i never got paid which i know is a really you know (laughs) right unfortunate thing to dwell on but but yeah so it's been fascinating in a way just to watch and then i met people i mean my god you know i met young women on the subway or anywhere where they were just like crazy in a like a Beatles nineteen sixty four kind of way that I just had no way of even <laughs> rocking. Like just crazy. Yeah. I was gonna ask you earlier about you know after you um publicly came out in two thousand four if you know if you if you felt like some kind of pioneer or role model or if people have talked to you about that in terms of like changing their life or making that acceptable for them or anything. I don't know if that's too heavy of a topic, though. No, uh, no, that's not, that's, not, that's not too heavy. And thanks for asking that. I think that the answer is, uh, have I had people reach out? No. But I also think that a lot of people who are involved in trans issues, queer issues, don't know about me. And I, like I've, I've been afforded this kind of silence. And <laughs> I've really thought a lot about, like, if I, like, turn the mic back on, if you will, you know, what will come of it? So I don't have the answer to that question, but I do want to be open to other folks. And yeah, so it's a very weird thing. And like in my regular life, I'm so connected to and tied to, I guess in the the most basic way, sort of socialist ideas, you know. So it feels just very strange not to know what kind of connection I might have with other people. So, yeah. I don't know if that makes. Yeah. I think so. I mean, you you stepped away from the performance limelight for a while. Yeah. Intentionally. So, what you seem to have implied here and there is that you're considering making your music more available again, and and you yeah. know maybe becoming slightly more public, like you haven't been in a, in a while. Well, it's good that you mentioned that because that is definitely where things are still in the kind of flux, 
it's almost impossible for me to understand sometimes when I see stuff, even like the music that we listen to tonight, how much the world has changed. And when I say the world, in this case, I'm not talking about the entire physical world. I'm talking about North America and Western Europe, that kind of thing. Agreeing that that's not really what the whole world is. Being a performer in 1993 or four, who was a woman, was absolute lighter fluid for facing incredible harassment and incredible denigration. It's so hard to even imagine now. And so sometimes when I hear about or read about um, someone moving through the music world today, or even the literature world I remember reading about two poets that the New Yorker was profiling and they were on their enormous cross-country tour. Like it was so insane to me and beautiful, I might add. I mean, I want to be clear. It's a gorgeous thing. But that these two people who were, first of all, racial minorities, which definitely mattered back at that time, but also like fucking poets, fucking talkers, that there were not only people who wanted to see them, but that there was a whole, like, I don't know how to say what it is, just, I can barely understand the kind of world that they live in. Do you know what I mean? I I do, yeah. I mean, I don't don't want to spend too long on it, but I, I just, like, yesterday got into a little internet beef with some people. They, A friend of mine had posted a description of a 10,000 Maniacs album, and the comment thread was so venomous toward Natalie Merchant, I couldn't yeah. believe it. And I, I you know, wrote in and said something like, what's going on here? I had no idea. Like, why, do, why are people hating on Natalie Merchant so much? And they were just throwing out these descriptions of how like unpleasant they thought she was. Oh, my God, not unpleasant. What?! How terrible. Well, yeah, but I, I've read interviews with her from the 80s and 90s where those male interviewers were so demeaning to her, so dismissive of her, so sexist. And like all of these men on this comment thread just like throwing these same ideas out there about like Natalie Merchant. Oh, you know, she's a bitch. But it just it, it really did feel like all of these people keeping their same attitude toward women that existed in the 80s and 90s and they kind of haven't. At least in terms of bands from that era, they kind of haven't moved on with the culture. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, but you, well, you're talking about something very real, and you're talking about something really true. Here's a thing that I have never forgotten. Sinead O'Connor, beautiful soul, talented singer and songwriter, and in some ways broken person from a lot of things before we even knew her as a public figure and after. Mm-hmm. women like me, and I was a woman at that time, I put her image on the fridge the moment I saw it. Then that album came out. And side note, John Tucker, who was a friend of mine, and as I mentioned earlier, was the audio instructor for me at the Ontario College of Art, was over at my house one night, and he said, what do you want, Marin? And I had on The Lion and the Cobra. I pointed at my stereo and I said, I want this. Yeah. So, Legs McNeil, let's say it again, Legs McNeil, who started the fanzine called Punk, who has escaped any scrutiny, in my opinion, was writing at that time for Rolling Stone. So, I'm not sure if this was just before or just after Sinead won I think it was five fucking Grammys. There's a picture of her with her her hands cupped to her elbows holding five Grammys for that album. So she was on the cover and the venerable Legs McNeil was the reporter. One of the first things he writes is, and I'm quoting from memory, but you know, you could look it up and it'll be almost. One is that as you're talking to her, with her fuckable Irish brogue. Oh, God. All you want to do is toss her onto the table and fuck her. 
And that's the cover story in Rolling Stone about a commercially successful artist who happens to be a woman. Like, <laughs> that's bullshit. Yeah. I mean, it's very upsetting. And like, obviously, that it's, that's the kind of thing that a male artist would never, ever have to have written about them. Ever. 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 In fact, be lauded for and excused for and understood for doing any number of things just because they were a guy. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Just a quick fact check before we continue. Marin cited the magazine as being Rolling Stone, but it was in fact the April 1990 issue of Spin Magazine. Marin's quotes are not perfect, but were very close and captured the basic tone of the article. Okay, back to the episode. Is there anything we should be on the lookout for in terms of you and your work, though? Just stay tuned? Is that... Yeah, I think stay tuned is the best bet. I am transferring a lot of stuff from analog to digital to post it. It's a very strange thing because, I mean, I'm not going to perform again. Although, I should mention that in 2004, I was part of a benefit for Out in Schools, which is a group in Vancouver that helps LGBT youth be able to connect with people and not just like take their own lives and that kind of thing. And I was asked to perform a piece and I decided to perform the sweater. So with a backing track and a black velvet dress that I had purchased in New York eons before, I performed and it was kind of great. It was kind of fun. Wow. But I never want to yeah. do it again, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's always the nice thing. You know, you're always free to change your mind or not. Right? Exactly, yes. I haven't checked Apple Music, but I know that Bombazine and Six Blocks are not on Spotify. So the work you're doing now with transferring, is that something that might become available to listen to in the future? Or is that like a rights issue with who controls those albums? Well, here's something I don't even know how to express how deeply I need it. And how much it will mostly be a penniless job, at least at the beginning. I need help. It's not about technology. Technology has always been my friend, mm -hmm. but it's about promoting your own music. I have had a lot of difficulty with that. And so I really need someone to kind of step in and be like, okay, man, I got this. Mm -hmm. Let me know what you need. Make it happen. So yeah, I guess I'm putting that out through your podcast as much as anywhere else. So it's the answer to the question is yes, that's sort of where we're at. But then I just don't have the hoops to do it on my own. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's possible that it could come out, but you need some help. And so if there's someone out there who has, I guess, the skills and time and wherewithal to help get that done, then reach out. <laughs> Maybe we can get some music yeah. out there for people to listen to. Awesome. Yes. Okay. Great. Merritt, thank you so much for all of your time. <laughs> This was great. This was not just a lot of fun for me, but it was really enlightening and um, cool. I'm glad. Really interesting podcast for me. Awesome. <laughs> and I hope for the listeners too. Yeah. So thank you again. Thank you to all the listeners out there for supporting the show. If uh, you haven't already done so, if you could like, subscribe, review, whatever it is, that would be great. All those things. Yep. If you want to contact me, I would love to hear from any listeners. You can reach out to me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. And otherwise, have a good one. We'll catch you all next time. Bye. Bye.